From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And just to end on the program, here comes the Fed meeting and the U.S. jobs report. I'm John Tucker in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where the new government has pushed back announcing its fiscal plan, leaving the Bank of England to go it alone with its interest rate decision. I'm Ryan Curtis. Hong Kong opens up with a big financial forum next week. What does it hope to achieve? I'm Amy Morris in Washington. We'll look at the final run-up to the midterms and why so many races are neck and neck. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Hi, everybody. I'm John Tucker. Let's start today's program with the coming Fed policy meeting and the U.S. Jobs Report. Joining me to talk about these things, Bloomberg Global Economics and Policy Editor Mike McKee, as usual. So the Fed first meets and then the job report comes a couple of days later. Uh, we know what the Fed's going to do pretty much uh, in the coming week, right? We do. We don't know what they're going to do after that, and to answer the question you didn't ask yet that everybody will ask me before that, is will the Fed see the jobs numbers before they meet? And no, they will not. So they'll be as surprised as all of us on <laughs> Friday when the jobs numbers come out. And that's going to be the interesting dynamic here. What does Jay Powell say about the future path of interest rates two days before a report that could influence the future path of interest rates. So it's going to be an interesting uh, interesting news conference from him. Okay, so remind everybody the linkage between Fed policy and jobs. Uh, keeping full employment is one of their mandates. The other mandate is, you know, price uh, keeping... Price stability, yeah. Price stability, and those are pretty uh, uh, closely linked. Well, the price stability target is, as everybody knows, 2% as measured by the personal consumption expenditures indicator. The full employment mandate is not defined. Um, it's kind of know it when you see it. The Fed tends to think it's around 4%. So at 3.5% right now, we're below that. Uh, the forecast from economists surveyed by Bloomberg for the October payrolls is it will tick up to 3.6%, but still very low. A still very strong uh, labor market that suggests people have money to spend and they're spending it. And the Fed's trying to bring demand down in order to bring prices down. And that generally means you end up with higher unemployment as companies 
produce less stuff, they need fewer people. And that dynamic hasn't kicked in yet, except perhaps in the real estate industry. Okay, but they also have to pay them when all those people are working and uh, paying people money. Uh, that's inflationary, right? I, I forgot that. I, I mean, those high, higher wages. Well, it's the higher wages. It's the fa- it's it's when uh, employees start to ask for more money because inflation is high that the Fed gets worried. Which we do because every then week it, here. it's it starts a uh, a circular. Uh, problem for them. And so they want to get ahead of that. Uh, Surveys show that people think that uh, inflation is still mostly contained. Their their views are it's risen a little bit. Uh, And so the Fed is pretty much uh, certain that it wants to do at least one more 75 basis point move because they want to try to get ahead of that. They want to convince people. That, by the way, is three quarters of a percent. They want to get ahead of... uh, the, the, any kind of wage price spiral and let people know that uh, they are on the job. Okay, is there evidence of, uh, uh, is there a threat of a wage a price spiral that we, like we saw in the 70s? We haven't seen anything like that yet. And the best guess is we won't uh, have anything like the 1970s. For one thing, you don't have large pattern union contracts as you did then, where one union in an industry gets a, a new contract with higher wages and everybody else has to match it. So that will help hold down uh, that whole issue. But even uh, now, we're seeing uh, five, six, seven percent raises uh, over the last uh, two years, uh, earnings rising by that much. And um, while that's great for workers, then companies have to make that up somehow. So they uh, raise uh, their their prices. And the problem is, is that they haven't been able to find workers. There is a supply problem of labor. And so that means that, A, they're much less interested in letting people go, which relates to the jobs report, and B, uh, they've had to pay up to get them. And now the question is, does the labor market stabilize? Do they find enough people that they can uh, that, that they don't have to keep paying more. And the only way they can, the Fed can affect that is by reducing demand. Uh, the higher rates, they are having an impact and slowing things down, uh, certainly in housing. Certainly in housing. Housing basically kind of in a recession. Uh, residential investment in the third quarter, according to the GDP report from last week, fell by 26%. Uh, that is the kind of numbers we saw in the great financial crisis when housing all collapsed and uh, back in the uh, early 1990s. It's, uh, it, it's a, a sector that is in deep trouble for right now. Um, it's cyclical, though. We know that. Uh, it comes and goes. It's worse, perhaps, right now than it has been in a while. But um, at some point, there will be more demand for housing, and uh, it'll pick back up again. But right now, it's leading the way down. Okay, so uh, I keep asking this question, but do they have to torpedo employment to get to their goal of bringing inflation down? Well, at the same time, I don't know, you know, (laughs) with that employment, full employment goal, too. To stick with your metaphor, uh, they don't need, they don't necessarily need to torpedo employment. They can just let a little air out of the boat. But uh, the problem is, you don't know when that's, when, when you've actually successfully done that. Bloomberg Global Economics and Policy Editor Michael McKee. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, it's also interest rate decision time for the Bank of England. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg.
This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Up later in the program, big, high-profile gathering in Hong Kong. But first, in the UK, after the political upheaval of the past few weeks, focus is shifting back to the Bank of England, which announces its next rate decision on Thursday. The UK bond markets have settled down since the so-called mini-budget that led to the resignation of the Prime Minister, Liz Truss, but the bank still trying to rein in inflation, running at 10.1%. And for more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. John, it's a big week for the UK economy, but it was meant to be even bigger. Monday the 31st had been chosen as the date for a fiscal statement from the new finance minister, Jeremy Hunt, aimed at steadying the ship after the disastrous tax and spending plans of the last government that caused turmoil on the markets and sent the pound plunging to a record low against the dollar. But... That's now been pushed back until November 17th. Here's the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, explaining why. The medium-term fiscal plan is extremely important, and I want to confirm that it will demonstrate debt falling uh, over the medium term, which is very important for people to understand. As it stands, the Bank of England will now have to make its rate decision on Thursday without those details. To talk about this, I'm joined by Bloomberg senior UK economist Dan Hansen and our markets reporter Valerie Titel as well. Valerie, I'm going to start with you. So just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the potential for a meltdown in gilt markets. It seems everything's calmed down now, even the delay of the fiscal statement not causing too many ripples in the markets. Yeah, a lot has changed. A lot has changed. Uh, the volatility in the gilt market has definitely calmed down. Yields have retraced a lot of their move that happened um, after the uh, uh, mini budget uh, back in September. But uh, the, the key thing for me, uh, looking at the markets, is just the the inflationary impulse from the fiscal fiscal measures is going to be way smaller. We know that this energy plan is pared back. Yes, we don't have uh, the announcement on. on Monday, but it looks like uh, fiscal restraint is definitely in the pipeline. Dan, where does all of this leave the Bank of England, their decision on Thursday? Is this going to change their calculations if they don't have the fiscal statement? I'm not sure it does, to be honest. And it goes to what Valerie just said. I mean, they know this consolidation is coming. I mean, it won't be in their forecast because the way it works is the bank isn't allowed to assume anything about fiscal policy. It has to just take government announcements as given. So it won't have any of the consolidation in the forecast. So all else equal, inflation will be a little bit higher than it otherwise would be once the consolidation is taken into account. But I think the important thing we know now is that the Chancellor and the Governor are talking. They, the Governor will know the rough outline of what the Treasury is thinking. And as you said at the start there, the market hasn't been spooked by this delay. So there isn't really any pressure on the bank to go over and above what it thinks is necessary to just fight inflation. There isn't this need to sort of restore confidence in UK assets. So it's, it's really just about focusing on what they think is necessary to bring inflation back down. Where does that leave your forecast for what the Bank of England is going to do? Yeah, so we've been on a bit of a roller coaster, to be honest. I mean, I think it's on the 26th of September we saw the market price in 200 basis points for this meeting. We've come all the way back down to just about 75 basis points. I mean, our view is the committee is going to be torn between 50 and 75, and I think they'll they'll go for 75. They'll go for the slightly bigger option, but I think the the idea of a three-digit rate rise now is completely out the window. It's between it's between 50 and 75. And I think there is probably enough news on the fiscal side to warrant a slightly bigger move, particularly when you take into account 
sterling is still down relative to their last forecast. And we've still got inflation in double digits and the labour market is still very, very hot. Okay, Valerie, you've been riding that market roller coaster with us yes. uh, over the past couple of weeks. Uh, how how are the markets feeling about the Bank of England? Yeah, there. You know, we're the markets really reading this is that we're less likely to have a monster hike. You know, as we just mentioned, seventy five basis points is now priced. It's even dropped a teeny bit below seventy five. But but I think I'll be focused on the division within the MPC. Last meeting, we had a a huge. Uh, array uh, of choices. We had some members uh, calling for 75, some for 50, some for 25. So is that division repeated? Um, As we know, when they met previously, it again was on the eve of a big fiscal announcement and they passed up the opportunity to speed up the pace and stuck with 50. So, you know, as Dan mentioned, I think they're probably very eager, eager to step up the pace, given that the, the market is pricing 75. It's giving them a good opportunity to step it up to 75. Um, and then uh, the other side of the uh, of the coin is QT. You know, is due to start next Tuesday on the first of November. Now, remember when the Bank of England met last time? Uh, they were not divided on QT. It was a unanimous unanimous mm-hmm. decision. So I don't expect that to rock the boat uh, anymore um, uh, next Thursday. Okay, Dan. What about the, the the cleanup job the government has to do? Of course, they have this extra time now to put this fiscal statement together with the full OBR forecast. You've predicted that or projected that the cleanup from Trustonomics will knock one and a half percent off the UK's GDP. How will the bank have to balance that hit to growth with red hot inflation? Yeah, I mean that it, it's a really stark trade off that the Bank of England is is facing, and it and I think actually that it'll. It'll potentially be even worse in their forecasts when we when we see them. The, the 2023 forecast, I think, will be very, very weak. Um, I think in reality, what that means is that we might get 75 um, in, in November. But I think um, going ahead, the bank will probably be a little bit more cautious, particularly knowing this consolidation's coming. And the fact that we know the economy has weakened significantly, particularly since it last put the bank last put together its forecast in August, and looking as I say in 2023, the picture is the picture is pretty bleak. I mean, we've got this energy cap coming in that's going to help, but I don't think it's going to prevent the UK falling into recession over the winter and in the first half of 2023. So it, it's going to be a it's going to be a trade off. And as that as that activity data sours, I think the pressure will come off a little bit on the bank for keeping the pace of rate hikes high sort of in the 75 50 range i think it will give them room to drop down i mean i don't think they're going to be able to stop until inflation is clearly on a downward trajectory but the the pressure to go big at meeting after meeting will drop significantly what about the 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 mortgage market and all of this because it's you know it's been the sort of the simplest read through that people have had from the the market turmoil anyway how much does that factor into a bank of england decision of what's happening in terms of of the housing market well, I think it will factor in quite significantly and particularly will give them reason to think that the near-term outlook will be potentially weaker than they were expecting in August. And I think it will be reason for them to be a little bit more pessimistic about the demand outlook in the near term. That's something that will be interesting to see how they characterise what they think will go on with the housing market in the near term. Okay, Valerie Titel, our markets reporter, and Dan Hansen, senior UK economist at Bloomberg Economics. Thank you to you both for your insights. Stephen, thanks a lot. Just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Why so many are keeping a close eye on a big financial meeting in Hong Kong? I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg.
Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. John Tucker in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Big finance gathering coming in Hong Kong. And for more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and his colleague Doug Krisner. John, coming up in Hong Kong, the Global Financial Leaders Investment Summit. Not as snappy a title as, say, Vision Quest or Burning Man, but this summit is meant to get Hong Kong its financial mojo back after a period of hibernation. And a number of financial heavyweights will certainly be there, among them Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon and Morgan Stanley boss James Gorman. Why are they attending? And what is Hong Kong hoping to achieve? And what role will U.S. sanctions play? Some Hong Kong leaders, like the chief executive John Lee, are covered by U.S. sanctions against Hong Kong and Chinese officials for the crackdown here on political freedoms. Lee has said he laughs off those U.S. sanctions. Joining us now for some insight on the forum is Bloomberg senior editor Richard Frost. Richard, thanks very much for being with us. So the panels are themed on three areas, navigating through uncertainty, technology, innovation, and the future of finance, and sustainable finance. All of these are quite interesting. But as mentioned at the top there, the real story is Hong Kong getting back on its feet. How big is the buy-in from some of the big financial institutions? Uh, as you mentioned at the start, it's a, it's a sort of all-star uh, lineup really for this. It's been very heavily pushed by Hong Kong. I'm sure there's been quite a lot of strong arming um, from authorities here. It was first announced by um, the finance secretary in his budget earlier this year. And Hong Kong has done a lot to try and ensure that um, it, it got as many attendees as possible. Uh, when it was announced, there was still mandatory hotel quarantine. And in recent months, it's removed that. It's made a number of concessions uh, to attendees, including allowing them to fly out if they, uh, if they get COVID, if necessary, to leave the city by private jet. Because Hong Kong really wants to show that after more than two years in self-imposed isolation, it's back on the global stage. And so having all these heavyweights come in, it really underlines that point. How has the pandemic changed the banking and financial services industry in Hong Kong? We've heard stories about flight of talent in some pockets of the industry. I mean, it's been described as a significant amount of brain drain. How does it stack up? There has been um, a notable exodus of residents uh, and bankers and lawyers, etc. among them. I mean, Hong Kong had its population dropped by a record 1.6% in the, in the 12 months through June. Banks retain a very significant presence here, uh, nonetheless, um, and uh, their regional headquarters remain, uh, remain in Hong Kong. Uh, so in, in some ways, um, it's, not, um, it's not affected the presence of banks, uh, but it certainly made the city a much less appealing uh, place to live in. Um, and Singapore in particular 
has stolen a march on Hong Kong by trying to attract um, the the wealthier uh, wealthier workers. It rolled out uh, new visas, uh, and it and it's it's also been hosting a number of high profile events prior to Hong Kong to to really show that um, that to to show how it could rival Hong Kong in terms of being a, an international finance center. Yeah, and on that point, we just had the Party Congress wrap up in in China. It was seen as disappointing, partially because it seemed national security issues uh, came to the fore over, um, say, the economy. I'm curious, though, does that work for or against Hong Kong's future? It's, I mean, that, that remains to be seen. It's certainly interesting timing uh, for, for all the attendees coming to Hong Kong for this summit. It's against a landscape of blasted... Uh, a blasted kind of market for Chinese assets. Uh, we saw a huge sell-off on Monday in the wake of the National Congress uh, on concern over Xi's increased control over the nation's top political bodies. And Hong Kong is, is going to is seen as going to be remaining as a gateway to China. Mm. But with China changing itself and increasingly closing off, um, it remains to be seen how much business um, that banks and others can access. Will China continue to put up uh, walls or will it continue opening up? All right, Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Interesting insights. Bloomberg Senior Editor Richard Frost. And I'm Brian Curtis here in Hong Kong, along with Doug Krisner. By the way, you can catch us every weekday for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. John? Brian and Doug, thanks a lot. And just ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a lot of twists and turns in U.S. politics as the midterms approach. I'm John Tucker. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm John Tucker in New York. Clock is ticking on the midterms, and it's a fast-moving and rapidly shifting dynamic. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Amy Morris. Amy. That's right, John. We are approaching what some may be calling the height of the political silly season. It's kind of an anything-goes sort of atmosphere. Joining me now to talk about it, Bloomberg political reporter Ryan Teague Beckwith. Ryan, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. Anytime. Let's talk about the polls. Uh, There was a poll out this past week with President Biden's approval ratings dipping down to 39%. It's a Reuters-Ipsos poll that puts the president's rating almost at the lowest of his presidency, um, and we're getting closer and closer to November 8th. So how bad does this bode for Democratic midterm candidates, especially the ones he's been campaigning for, or does it? Do people pay attention anymore? You know, it's a weird um, phenomenon, but it does seem that the presidential approval rating is not as closely tied to the generic congressional ballot. Uh, it's certainly not good for Democrats uh, for Biden to not be more popular than he is. Um, it remains to be seen how much of a drag it will actually be. I, I I don't know. It feels it feels a little bit disconnected, and I'm not sure why that is. Have you seen that before? Uh, I mean, we saw that a little bit with Trump. Obviously, like Trump lost re-election, even as people voted for a lot of Republicans down ballot. So there were a lot of people who were able to make that separation. And it's kind of a shift to, I think, in some of these, we're seeing some potential for crossover voting in governor states with governor and Senate races at the same time, where 
like they there seems to be a significant number of people who are willing to vote for a Republican for governor and then for a Democrat for senator or vice versa, which is unusual because we had been moving more in this direction of kind of lockstep partisanship and that there may be a few races, including some that could be decisive where that may not happen. Now, let's talk about one of those races that that may be a toss up. It's pretty tight. The Oz Fetterman debate that's going on or that went on this past week in Pennsylvania. Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman at the debate. I just want to play what he had to say, because the big um, overriding issue for them has been that he had a stroke and what his health might mean for the future in that office. And so he addressed it. Elephant in the room, I think he called it. Let's see what he had to say. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate, mush two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm going to keep coming back up. All right. So tell me the response to that. Is it does it say something that he was that open and transparent and pushed it forward? Because even saying that um, the line, he's never let me forget that, that almost tries to paint Dr. Oz as a bully. And I I wonder if that's going to come back to bite him or help him. You know, I think ultimately uh, he could have had a stronger performance in terms of being able to show that he's able to talk. I think the concern that people had was like, boy, you know, the whole point of a senator is that you get there and you give speeches, which isn't exactly accurate anymore. But that is a genuine concern. And I think that the Fetterman campaign mishandled it early on by not being more transparent. I think Oz also overplayed his hand a little bit. Um, and I think that the the pushback there has helped soften that a little bit for the Fetterman campaign. Um, I, I don't think it was a good night for Fetterman, but I also think like Oz, for example, his answer on abortion did not do him any favor. Let's listen to that answer, at least in part. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. All right. Explain. Pick that apart. <laughs> I, I just think that uh, the answer itself is fairly de rigueur. And I think he's basically saying in that that he doesn't want to go to the Congress and make decisions on abortion. He wants to leave that at the local level, which is probably a good argument for him. But the combination of women, their doctors and local political leaders, I think, was just not it's just such an image that it pops up in your head of like standing there in the doctor's office with like the mayor or something mm. like it just I don't think it did him any favors. I think it's not uh, it's kind of more of what you might think of as like a gaff, like in the traditional sense where back when we had gaffes and they mattered. Um, but it's certainly anything on that issue, which he's been very uh, careful to avoid the pitfalls that I think some other Republicans have rushed headlong into um, on an issue that has the potential to turn out voters in some states. You said something important. Back when we had gaffes and they mattered, I know you were being tongue-in-cheek, but let me pull on oh, that. I'm not being tongue-in-cheek. Okay. Like, I really mean that. Oh, okay, I mean- well, let me pull on that for a second, <laughs> because if we are so divided and we're so entrenched in our own parties and what we already think— are, do we need debates anymore? People have made up their minds, haven't they? You know, I mean, I'm a political reporter, so I'm always going to be pro-debate. Okay. And I, I think that Fair skipping enough. a debate is damaging. And I think that that not being willing to uh, show up and, and uh, debate your opponent is, is not a good look. And I think that you've seen that in Arizona. Katie Hobbs, who is the Democratic gubernatorial nominee, uh, declined to interview uh, to a debate. Uh, Carrie Lake 
uh, who was very good at debating in the Republican primaries. Um, and I th- and and Lake successfully used that against her. And I think that if she loses that race, I think that will be something people will point to and say that was a mistake. Of course, if she'd done the debate and done poorly, they would also point it to it and said it was a mistake. But I do think that you can, uh, among a certain sliver of independent voters, just hearing that you were unwilling to debate, it just doesn't uh, it doesn't sit well. And and also, I think that like really debates don't matter that much. Like I think that candidates who shy away from them are shying away from something where 99% of the time it doesn't make a difference. So I, you might as well do it because... You might as well do it. I mean, I, th- I think that the one thing you're trying to avoid is just that that one really bad answer. And and there are times when that happens. I mean, Terry McAuliffe like, had a really bad answer on parent choice in the gubernatorial race in Virginia. And I think that that really, really hurt him in the waning days of it. I think in some ways you might uh, avoid that by doing more debates. Like the more debates there are, the less any any one of them seems all that important. Um, and the better at debating you get. Uh, you know, I think in Oz Fetterman, that was one of the rare cases where people were really going to be watching it closely. Oz is obviously good on TV. We expected him to do well. Fetterman did not have a great track record in debates before. And, uh, you know, people were going to be watching him very carefully. I think it was a little bit reminiscent of what you see with Biden, where conservatives will tend to look at Biden's stuttering and verbal missteps and say, look, there's something wrong with him. He's not up to the job. And Democrats largely blow it off. Um, I think in in this particular case, unlike with Biden, I think that there were some independent voters who'd be looking at it and saying, you know, is he up for the job? So does it surprise you that it is as tight as it is? And that's not the only race that's tied. I mean, we've talked oh, about three a or four, bunch, yeah. and they're so neck and neck. This is this is the season for making your predictions about a sleeper race and hoping that no one remembers the ones you got wrong. But like Republicans right now are putting money in New Hampshire, where uh, you know you would normally think that they wouldn't have a chance, especially with a candidate. They're putting money in New Hampshire. Yeah, there's a Senate uh, candidate there, Don Bolduck, who is. Um, prone to saying some pretty goofy things and is running against an establishment Democrat with strong name ID uh, who, you know, normally does pretty well. And, you know, Republicans are putting money in that race uh, right now and trying to prop up uh, Don Balduck, whose own campaign doesn't have the kind of money to do that. Um, I I don't tend to think that one's going to work out for Republicans, but it's a smart play for them because it's a small amount of money with a potential big payoff. Um, and if it's a wave election, you know, try to snag as many of those as you can because you got those Senate seats for six years. So, you know, if you're if you're going to do it, do it. Um, I don't tend to think that one's going to work out for them. But there's other uh, there's some other races that I'm watching that are governor's races. I'm super curious to see what happens in Wisconsin. I think that Ron Johnson seems to have the Senate race locked down there, but the governor's race could be a toss up. Um, and it could be one of those states where the Democratic incumbent wins reelection, um, as does the Republican senator. Wisconsin's very uh, weird state, very polarized. Um, but the incumbents may both win there, even though that's kind of a split decision party-wise. Um, keeping an eye on uh, Arizona, just because uh, is in terms of election denial, it's a hotbed. The uh, governors, uh, candidates for governor, senator, attorney general, and secretary of state, which oversees elections, are all election deniers and not just 
normal election deniers, but Mark Fincham is running for secretary of state is probably like the preeminent election denier. Uh, and they've all basically said that they would use their position to try to influence the outcome of future elections. So uh, uh, Fincham wants to get rid of uh, using machines to count ballots uh, in a state like Arizona. It would take weeks and and thousands of people to hand count all the ballots. Um, hand counting ballots is also not accurate, not as accurate as machines, more expensive uh, and more time consuming. It's a nightmare. Um, so, you know, he could really throw uh, things uh, at future elections into all kinds of chaos there, as could the governor candidate, Carrie Lake. All right, Ryan, thank you so much. Anytime. Ryan D. Beckwith is Bloomberg political correspondent, and that's what's going on in the nation's capital. For more of our political news coverage, you can tune into Balance of Power with David Weston weekdays at noon Wall Street time and Sound On with Joe Matthew weekdays 5 p.m. Wall Street time right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. John. Amy Morris reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. Amy, thanks a lot. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.